Let's pray as we prepare to look into the Word together. We thank you, Lord, that when you speak, things happen. As you spoke and said, peace, be still, the waves were calmed. Lord, calm our hearts now and prepare us to hear from you. And I pray that you teach us this morning what it means to find real peace in our hearts with you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Well, I love this time of year, the Easter season. It's a time that, except for a few bunnies and colored eggs, it hasn't really been very corrupted by the world. It's still a Christian holiday, by and large. And uh, I love to focus on what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. It's a worshipful time, an exciting time. And today is Palm Sunday. Just a few days before Jesus was arrested and went to the cross and then rose again on our behalf. Jesus said to the disciples on the night before he died, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You see, Jesus came and died and rose again and what we celebrate this week, because he wanted us to experience peace. And the word that Jesus spoke there was not peace like our English word peace. He really said the word, the Hebrew or Aramaic word, shalom. I like the word shalom because it's far deeper in meaning than our English word peace. It's a word that the Jews still use today in Israel for their greeting, shalom, hello. But it has the idea of well-being, of everything being right, of being at peace with the world. The theological word book of the Old Testament describes it this way, unimpaired relationships and fulfillment in one's undertakings. Not necessarily success, but fulfillment, a wholeness, a completeness, a soul at rest where you say, it's okay, it's okay. What do you picture when you think of that shalom in your own life? What kind of picture comes to mind? Well, a friend of mine wrote down some things to describe what shalom would be like in her home. And I would just want to read some excerpts from it, if, if it really experienced shalom. It would be a place that I felt safe and welcome. The actual front door of the home would be one of those that is carved and has a window in it that I can stand and look out of on those winter days when it snows very hard but doesn't make a sound and keeps out the cold, even from my heart. Smells of well-cooked food and cookies baking that couldn't possibly think of making me fat or raising my cholesterol. (laughs) In the midst of it all, a family, great-grandparents, Grandparents, parents, and kids would come and go with freedom to be. Giggling, laughing, telling stories, and it would even be okay to cry and be afraid. Acceptance would be big in my home. Some would like to be alone. Some would like liver and onions, and some would definitely not. (laughs) Freedom to participate or not would be here. No signs on the wall that said, dinner's at 5 p.m. If you're not here, you're on your own. Instead, we would miss them and keep a plate warm somewhere for later. There could be rules, 
but nice ones like, love one another as Jesus has loved you. Kissing and hugging would be another nice thing to happen at my home. Picture of shalom. Picture of being home. And I think this shalom that we somehow, maybe we can't articulate it, but we somehow feel it, we long for it. You see, I think it drives the human heart of every one of us. We long for things to be okay. We long to experience our souls at rest where we say, it's okay, it's okay. I'm right with the world, it's okay. But because we long for it, we are driven to find some way to get it. And we need to know how to get it. Jesus came to give us shalom. And yet, when he says, I came to give you shalom, to give you peace, not as the world gives do I give to you. We need to understand the world's view of what shalom is and what we tend to look for in our own hearts and then understand Jesus' view of shalom so that we can begin to experience his shalom that he offers that's different from the world. Well, to do that, we want to look this morning at the triumphal entry. That glorious day that we read the passage from Matthew a little while ago when Jesus came riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem and the crowd was cheering, Hosanna! Glory to God! Blessed is he, the King, who comes in the name of the Lord. A glorious celebration. Let me read to you just from John, the John's version. Every gospel has a version of it. I'm going to read John 12, verses 12 through 19, as we set the stage this morning. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Picture in your mind what's going on on that Sunday morning, some nearly 2,000 years ago. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. A lot of the Jews, a lot of the crowd saw that. They're excited. This Jesus is powerful. He can raise people from the dead. He raised Lazarus. He's right here. Lazarus is walking in the crowd. He's with us. Look at this is him. And so they're excited and they're all abuzz. And Jesus, for the first time in his ministry is willing to say, yes, I'll let you declare me as Messiah. You see, his time has finally come. 
So he lets them cheer, and the crowd is cheering, and they begin moving, and he gets the donkey, begins riding on it, begins moving towards Jerusalem. And then the crowd in Jerusalem, who has heard about Jesus and his miracles, perhaps saw him up in Galilee and elsewhere. They've all come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They hear that Jesus is coming. So they begin moving out of Jerusalem, and they begin coming together with the crowd that's already with Jesus. And they intermingle and they tell one another, do you know what Jesus did? He raised Lazarus. See, he's right over there. He was dead four days in the tomb. And the people are thrilled and excited. And suddenly they begin cheering spontaneously. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Finally, he's here. Something interesting though. Did you notice why they came? Because of the miracles he did And in particular, the raising of Lazarus. You know how the crowds were. They were excited about Jesus for his power. They were awed by that. But in particular, they were awed because they were hoping he would do something for them. Remember the story of when he fed the 5,000? And they were thrilled. And they began following him. And they finally came to him and said, Jesus... You know, Moses fed us the manna in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus. (laughs) You fed us once. Come on. Keep coming. We want more. In the attitude of the crowd, you begin to see that they, yes, they're cheering him as Messiah, but the reason they're there is because of the miracles he did and what they're hoping to get from it. You see, their attitude is, Shalom comes from Messiah, but a particular Messiah, a conquering Messiah that comes to deliver us, to save us from the struggles of life. So we don't have to grow food anymore. He'll just feed us. We'll just show up and he'll take care of us. He'll deliver us from the Romans who have oppressed us now for some 70, 80 years and They'd actually been under the oppression of others for nearly five, for over 500 years. So the crowd begins to cheer, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 118, because I think it's important to understand what the crowd was thinking when they were cheering for him as the one who would bring shalom to their lives. We won't look at the whole psalm. We'll just look at the part that's quoted here. But the beginning in Psalm 20, or in verse 24 of Psalm 118, says, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, which is the word Hosanna. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Send prosperity. Fix our circumstances. Make it better. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And if you look closely at Psalm Psalm 118, it gives a picture of Messiah, who is the great conqueror. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, crying out to the Lord to say, 
You've conquered in the past. You've delivered us. You've helped us when we need it. So deliver us now. Take care of us. And we give thanks to you that you will deliver us. And it's clear that in the minds of the crowd, what they had in mind was that Jesus would come as a king to overthrow the Romans, to give the people their freedom, to fix their circumstances. See, isn't that the kind of Messiah that we want? We want Jesus to come and fix everything. Life is hard. It's a struggle. Jesus, help me be a better person. Jesus, help my spouse be a better person. (laughs) Help my kids to respond to me when I ask them to do something. Take care of the things I struggle with in my life. Fix my circumstances. Lord, you have the power to do it. You just raised Lazarus from the dead. I know you could fix my life. Why won't you? Think for a minute about this crowd. This very crowd that on that Sunday, Palm Sunday, picked up palm branches and waved them and cried, Hosanna! Praise Messiah! Five days later, picked up the taunts of the Pharisees and cried, Crucify him! He's not the king. He's not going to fix our circumstances. And just a few years later, the same crowd picked up weapons, said, we give up on Messiah. We're tired of the Romans. We'll kill them all ourselves. And they ended up being destroyed as a nation. And Jerusalem was flattened. How fickle we are, aren't we? As long as it looks like we'll get something out of it, we love to cheer the Lord. Yeah, you're wonderful. But when he doesn't come through, we struggle. We're like chameleons that turn away and change color to fit whatever will protect them the most. Whatever appears will get us what we want, we go for. And I'm the same. I've seen the Lord do amazing things. I've seen him come through in tremendous ways. And in the last few weeks, I've spent a number of sleepless nights just because of the anxiety of a number of things, in particular, thinking about taking a team of junior hires and staff to Thailand. Uh, the Lord's just working on my heart to help me find shalom in Him. How fickle we are, aren't we? But there's an attitude behind that that we all share in our fallenness. And that is that real shalom, wholeness, completeness, a soul at rest comes from having my circumstances be okay. Somebody fixing my circumstances so it will be all right. He has the power. He just needs to fix this thing in my life. You ever feel that way? So you begin to pray and you say, Lord, you have the power. Can you change my child's heart? to begin to listen to me and respond, to turn away from the wrong directions they're going? Can you change my spouse to begin to love me like I long to be loved? Would you give me a spouse? <laughs> Would you fix my health? I could just have I could have shalom if you would just do that, Jesus. If you would just 
fill in the blank, we all have those in our hearts, in our minds, then I could have shalom. Then life would be okay. For some of you, just one day would be great. <laughs> Lord, if you could just stop the kids from fighting for just one day, if I could just live one day without depression, if I could just live one day without the fear of losing my job or the creditors calling on the phone or whatever it is. God can do all that. Why doesn't he? And you see the reaction of the Pharisees I read. They're saying, this Jesus is just a problem. You see, they didn't want Jesus to fix their circumstances. They just didn't want him to be disruptive and mess up life because they were pretty much in power and control and had life as they wanted it. But see, either group, the group that wants Jesus to fix things or the group that doesn't want him to disrupt things, is functioning out of the same attitude. Lord, shalom comes when everything's okay and smooth circumstantially. That's how the crowd was viewing shalom. And that's how they viewed this event. Jesus is coming. Hallelujah! Hosanna! Now we'll fix things. But notice what happened. They cried, Hosanna, save us. Five days later, when he's on the cross, they said, huh, he saved others. Save yourself, Jesus. Save yourself. Well, that didn't seem to provide shalom for them, did it? That attitude. So the question is, what is the shalom that Jesus gives? And as we look at this event from God's perspective, I think we'll see a very different view of shalom. One of the interesting things about, as you look at all four descriptions of the triumphal entry, is that most of the verses are wrapped up in Jesus getting a donkey to ride on. (laughs) And as you read through it, we read through Matthew earlier, or Luke, or Mark in particular. John doesn't say quite as much about it. It's interesting that so much time is spent on Jesus saying, okay, guys, two of you, go get the donkey. Here's what you'll say when they ask you about it. Here's how they'll respond. You say this, you get the donkey and bring it and I'll ride on it. Now, my question is, why so much about riding on a donkey? Well, the passages tell us, John in particular says in verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written... Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. You see, the crowd saw this as a Psalm 118 event. But God saw it as a Zechariah 9-9 event. Now, that's important. It's significant. Turn with me, then, to Zechariah 9, because I think it's important to see how God viewed this triumphal entry. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. So go to Matthew, turn left, go past Malachi and hit Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, God wants to make perfectly clear as we read the Gospels 
that this was not Psalm 118, which is a wonderful event, and Jesus promises to be our deliverer at the second coming, our deliverer in in the physical world. He will set all things right, and that'll be wonderful. But he wants to make perfectly clear that God's view of this triumphal entry is that it's this event in Zechariah 9. He says, rejoice greatly. This is a wonderful thing. Your king is coming to you. Messiah is here. But listen to the description of Messiah. He is just. The first word. It's the word righteous. It really has the sense here, I think, of innocence. He's an innocent one. He's pure. He's right. He does what is right and he is right. Secondly, he says, now my translation says, endowed with salvation. I think the translators weren't sure how to translate this, but literally it's the word saved or delivered. He's one that's pure, innocent, and he's also one that's delivered. Now I think the reason they aren't sure how to translate it is that this is a description of Messiah But how do you see Messiah as one who needs to be saved? He doesn't need to be saved spiritually, we know, because he's righteous. But he needs protection. He needs God to protect him. Notice the next two words he uses to describe him. Humble, in my translation, yours may say something different. That word really means oppressed. Someone who's poor, who is poor, humble. Primarily someone suffering as one commentator writes, primarily someone suffering from some kind of disability or distress, socially defenseless, subject to oppression. He came as a Messiah that was utterly helpless, powerless. And then it says, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, I think this pictures lowliness, powerlessness, weakness. One commentator says, Even in modern Egypt, Christians and Jews could only ride on donkeys, not horses, to keep themselves more lowly than the Muslims on horses. You see, the donkey, riding on a donkey, was a picture of lowliness, of weakness. If you wanted to go to war, you'd come in on a white stallion, and you would run over people, and you'd have your swords flashing. But Jesus came instead, not as that kind of Messiah that the crowd was looking for, not as a second coming Messiah, who will do that, but rather as a first coming Messiah, humble, lowly, oppressed, destined to die, to bring a different kind of shalom for now. You see, shalom for us comes through the suffering of Jesus, came through the cross, which did not fix our circumstances in the short run, did it? Didn't fix mine. (laughs) Maybe it fixed yours. But what it did fix is my relationship with God. It gave me his presence in my life. What it did, the shalom that Jesus offers from the first coming, from Zechariah 9, is the shalom that says, no matter what you go through in life, I am with you. I will always be with you. My presence is with you and for you. You can always be right with God through the cross, no matter what. 
We built a house a few years back, and when they put the asphalt shingles on the roof, they were newly on there, when suddenly the wind came up, and I could see these shingles flapping, and some of them were starting to tear, and and I thought, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't make sense. This isn't what's supposed to happen, right? (laughs) The roof's supposed to protect you from the weather. Well, I called the contractor and talked to him, and he said, oh, well, you know, the wind came up quickly, and we'll repair whatever needs to be repaired when it calms down. But what will happen, he said, is when we have a warm day, those shingles will begin to melt into one another, and they'll stick. And then they'll provide the protection for the house. So that whatever storms come, whatever winds come, they'll stay down from there on. I thought, huh. You see, when the storms blow, storms of life blow, we can, we can go through them and we can have strength to endure them, not because they don't come, but because we're stuck tight to one another and ultimately to the Lord, who is our stability and our strength. You see, that's where shalom comes from. Those shingles don't move anymore, no matter what happens. <laughs> They're stuck there. And Jesus says, that's the shalom I want to give you. Not to stop the storms, but to give you a place in my presence, stuck to me, where you can have a soul at rest, no matter what happens. I'm still in Zechariah, and let me read verse 10 for you to say a little bit more about this Messiah that Jesus came to be. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace. It's that word shalom. He will speak shalom to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. At the first coming, Messiah, he says, is to be one that will not use the weapons of war to destroy your enemies and make everything great. He says, in fact, I will destroy all the weapons of war. And he says, this is where peace will come from the message of Messiah. I will speak peace. I will speak shalom. In other words, it's making our relationship right with God that brings triumph in the midst of the chaos and the storms of life rather than getting rid of them. The crowd was looking for Psalm 118, the second coming. Jesus says, this is the first coming. And until I come again, the shalom I offer you is the shalom of a right relationship with God. He will be with you no matter what you face. True shalom comes as we gaze on the face of Christ and draw near to him. I like the way Oswald Chambers put it when he says this. There are times when our peace, our shalom, is based upon ignorance. But when we awaken to the facts of life, when we begin to see life as it really is, chaotic, crazy, (laughs) wild, inner peace is impossible unless it is received from Jesus. When our Lord speaks peace, he makes peace. His words are ever spirit and life. Have I ever received what Jesus speaks? My peace I give unto you. It is a peace which comes from looking into his face and realizing his undisturbedness. It's an inner tranquility in the midst of the chaos. I saw a picture one time of a mother 
holding her baby. And behind her and all around her was a war going on. There were bombs exploding and bullets flying and soldiers firing at one another. And yet as she gazed down at her baby, she had a look of utter contentment and peace on her face. Just being in the presence of her baby gave her that. And that pictures for me, I think, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the shalom I give to you, not as the world gives. A shalom that says, it's okay. He's with me. Even though life's crazy, it's okay. He's with me. You see, it's his presence that gives us shalom, not his protection from the circumstances. Psalm 23, you know that verse about our good shepherd, where it says, Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because he fixes it so it isn't there? No. I will not fear, for you are with me in the midst of it. Our son, our youngest son, Jordan, our five-year-old, had surgery recently. And as we took him to the hospital, it was kind of a scary time, not just for him, but for his parents as well. As we sat with him as he was in the pre-op room and he was in his bed and all ready to go, and we were trying to comfort him and encourage him, we talked to him about what was coming up, what they would do, and they'd put him to sleep and what the surgery would entail. And You know, he wasn't very comforted by that, really. <laughs> As we said, and when you get out, you'll get lots of attention and maybe, you know, we'll have a surprise for you. And that was okay, but that really didn't comfort him either. (laughs) But as we sat there and the nurse came in and she said, well, are you ready to go, Jordan? And he went. (laughs) And she said, well, uh, maybe in a minute. He went like this. We held his hand and we said, Jordan, as soon as you wake up, We'll come in and we'll be with you. And he said, okay. And he was able to go. You see, it was our presence that gave him peace in the midst of the surgery. And it's true for us. It's not avoiding the surgeries of life that bring shalom, that bring wholeness and completeness to life. But rather, it's staying close to him in the midst of it. Knowing He's there, knowing He's with you, and that He's working it all for good. It's His presence, not His protection, that brings you shalom. I want to end by looking at the end of this portion, the triumphal entry, in Luke chapter 19. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41. The verses before this are all the story of the triumphal entry. And he's moving towards Jerusalem. The crowd is cheering. The two crowds have met. They're thrilled and they're saying, Hosanna! Glory to God! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus crests the top of the Mount of Olives. And as he gets to the top, when you get to the top, if you've ever been there, you look down and you can see the entire city of Jerusalem below you. And for Jesus, he could see the temple standing right before him on that side of the city. Powerful moment. Wouldn't it be a wonderful time, you think? 
Notice what Jesus says, what happened in verse 41 and following. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. And the word for wept here is not a just a few tears streaming down, but it's really a strong word for weeping loudly. And Jesus said, If only you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, shalom. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize that I came to bring you a shalom that is my presence with you. And so the crowd, as I mentioned in a few years, said, we'll find shalom our way. They tried to kill the Romans and the Romans destroyed the entire city. Jesus prophesies it here in A.D. 70. And Jesus weeps because he says, you missed it. You were looking for the wrong kind of shalom, the wrong kind of peace. It's not in your circumstances being right. So he weeps deeply. As Jesus looks over your life, as he looks over my life, does he weep? Does he say, if only you would look for the shalom I've already given you and quit looking for it in finances and comfort and whatever. I've already given it to you. Please receive it as a gift. I saw a movie a week ago or so, Mr. Holland's Opus. Excellent movie. I really enjoyed it. And I won't give it away for those of you who haven't seen it, but it's really a story about a man who thought that fulfillment would come in a certain way if he could just finish his symphony that he was writing. And his life got detoured, and it wasn't until the end that he began to realize that that wasn't where his life and joy and fulfillment would really come from. We all need to realize that, that the things we look to are not what will give us shalom, but it's what Jesus offers, a right relationship with God that we can have now in the midst of life. Oswald Chambers says, Jesus Christ came to send a sword through every piece that's not based on a personal relationship to himself. He's committed to us knowing him and finding our shalom in him. Someday our circumstances will all be set right when Jesus comes again. Hallelujah! That will be fabulous. I can't wait, believe me. But in the meantime, he says, I offer you a shalom that can see you through the storms of life. Will you cling to me, he says. For now, shalom is an inner rightness with God that makes the outer wrongness of the world somehow bearable because he is with you. Let's let him work that greater miracle of not just fixing our circumstances, 
but being with us in the midst of them that will reflect his glory in the midst of the chaos. As Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this week, this Easter week, when we celebrate what you have done for us. Help us, Lord, to let go of the things that we look to for shalom that are other than you. And help us to really look for our shalom in you, in your presence with us. Thank you for what you have done, the great miracle of giving us peace with God, his very presence in us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.